Romans 8, 1 to 11. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Loving Father, I thank you for that truth. That your grace and your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so we pray that tonight as... As I speak, as we meditate on these words, that you would speak clearly to our hearts and minds, that we would learn to know what it is to live in the light of Christ. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we love um, a quick fix, don't we? I don't know if that's you, I love a quick fix. Um, If there's an issue, then we love to relieve the pain that's associated with the issue. We love to do all that's needed to ensure that life is plain sailing. Some will want to do something to resolve the tension. Others uh, might want to find a way to compete or to blame others. Uh, Others, of course, will just give up when faced with tension knowing that they won't get what they want. But sometimes I think we need to hold to a position of tension. And that's where we're going tonight. One writer said, What happens when we don't learn to hold the tension between what is and what we know to be possible, the reality and the possibility, is that we flip out on one side or the other. If you don't have a capacity to hold the tension in your heart between reality and possibility, then you're just going to give up eventually. The writer says, I don't think in this culture we teach very much or have much formation around the holding of these great tensions which is so critical to our lives. 
reality and possibility. Uh, on Friday, I had the great delight of going up in a hot air balloon. It was awesome. Has anybody else done that? A few, oh, I'm not alone. Okay, great. I had such a great time, but um, I won't regale you with all my stories. But one thing I will say is this. Coming to land in a hot air balloon is not easy. I thought that the pilot would just be able to kind of find their way and, and they would be able to land it in whatever field they chose. That is not the case, even when it's not that windy. So we, we'd made probably three attempts to land. And then in front of us, there was this huge, great cornfield. Now, officially, they're not allowed to, to land in cornfields, but he had, the pilot had clearly got to a point where he'd had enough. And he thought, I've just got to get this thing down. So he said, right, we're going to land in that field over there. It was a huge, great field, massive field. And uh, for whatever reason, he just couldn't quite get low enough. And so actually, we were probably, I don't know, about 40, 50 meters away from a hedgerow when we actually came down. And I thought, well, that's good news. He's done it. That's all good. Clearly, he's now landed. It's all, it's all fine. And then he just shouted. He shouted, right, guys, get out. Any guys, get out. Women, stay on board. He made no apology for that, but that's what he said. And so the guys all get out, and he said, now, now guys, I want you to, to really try and hold the balloon, because the balloon was still, with all the momentum, was going towards the hedge. And I thought, well, you know, clearly this is just what he does every time. It's fine. You know, he's the pilot. He knows what he's doing. And then all of a sudden, just as I thought the balloon was about to stop, about to be fine, he made the call. And he said, let go! And all the guys let go. And all of a sudden, he did whatever he needed to do for the balloon to hop over the hedge and land in the next field. And I was thinking, you know, for me, it was very, very clear that it was possible to land in that field. But he knew what he was talking about. He had done it again and again, and he saw the reality that he was never going to stop in time for that hedge. Reality and possibility, that's where we're going tonight. In this passage, we find two tensions that are realities in life, and that's so important because in this amazing, triumphant, glorious chapter which takes us from verse 1, which we saw last week, James was speaking, no condemnation. What a beautiful and amazing truth. It takes us from no condemnation all the way through to the final verse, which is no separation. No condemnation, no separation. That's the breadth of this chapter. And it's an incredible chapter. And I want us to see tonight that, that the no condemnation of verse 1 and the no separation from God in the last verse isn't just an optimistic, positive approach to life which frees us to live in that amazing reality that we're not condemned and that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This isn't some kind of optical illusion. It's not a tablet for Christians to take to say, do you know what, if, we just, if we're just positive thinkers, we'll be okay in the end. Last week, James spoke about those two important words, no and in. Do you remember that? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
But equally for those who are in Christ Jesus, in the last verse of this chapter, just read it, you'll see that there is no separation. Wonderful truths, truths to ponder, to consider, to feed on, to help us in our daily lives. But friends, these truths are grounded in reality. They're not just possibilities, they're grounded in reality. They're grounded in the reality of the tension of this life because although there is no condemnation and although there is no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is also a reality that we struggle and that things come against us and life doesn't always feel as though there's no condemnation or no separation from Christ Jesus. One day we're going to see it. One day we're going to experience it. One day we're going to know it in every single moment. But right now, it doesn't always feel the case. Why? Well, I think there are two realities to life that Paul is grappling with here. He's grappling with guilt and he's grappling with death. Two realities that cloud this great shout of praise, his amazing certainty that there is no condemnation or no separation for those that are in Christ Jesus. How do they match up when there's guilt and there's death? So just two points this evening as we look at this passage. Particularly last week we looked at verses 1 to 4. Particularly I'm going to be looking at verses 5 to 11. But you'll see there's a sweep through the chapter. First of all, I think there's good news here for shaky Christians. Good news for shaky Christians. I was speaking to somebody this week that they, what they thought would happen if you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. They described it like this. He said to this to me. He said, imagine a graph which has got a, a vertical axis with one and zero. He was a very binary guy. One and zero. He says, if my level of doubts are here at zero, if they're there, then if I believe God, then my doubts must be here. Basically, he's saying, if you believe God, then you don't have any doubts. That was his interpretation. So he was saying, how on earth can I believe in God? Because I've still got a million doubts. Being a Christian is putting your life in God's hands, trusting in his grace. And do you know what? You can still do that when you've got doubts. It isn't about summoning sufficient faith that you've got no doubts whatsoever or not addressing the difficult questions so that you can live without the doubts. I think most Christians are, in this sense, shaky Christians. I have doubts. I have times that I struggle. I'm full of questions. But trusting that God is faithful, that he's just, that Jesus' promises are right and true, that's enough for me to be a shaky Christian. Paul, this great apostle, has just spent chapter 7 describing his frustration as a Jew in wanting to keep God's law, but finding that he couldn't keep it. He speaks of that subtle tendency to return to legalism, where relationship with God is determined by our obedience. And that's not unfamiliar to us, is it? My moral goodness, my attendance at church, my regularity in my quiet times, my good deeds, my need to share my faith, all of those great things become a measure of how I'm walking with God. 
And that can be devastating to us. And it was for Paul. Because we're sinful, because we can't live up to the moral code of the law. That's why in chapter 7, verse 22, Paul talks about his inner being delighting in God's law. And yet, in verse 23, he's a prisoner to the law of sin and death. He's describing the experience of so many of us. That the law, the commands not to commit adultery, not to want what my friend has got, not to to honor my parents well, to refrain from anger actually makes me discover that I am a sinner and that I can't live up to the moral code that God has given us. So in verse 24, Paul cries out for liberty and for freedom. He wants Jesus as a rescuer. But the war isn't over, verse 25. The battle goes on. That's the person to whom chapter 8 is written. The person who's struggling with that tension And I wonder if you recognize yourself in that. A strong desire to do good. But you feel that you just can't carry it out on a sustained basis. And so you let God down. You let yourself down. You let others down again and again. And that's why when we get to verse 1 of chapter 8, it is so wonderful. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The promise, as James said last week, is not that you will not sin, but that there is no condemnation. So when people look in from the outside and they say, look at those Christians, how hypocritical. Surely they should do better, they should be better, they should be kinder, be more gracious, more loving. Well, I want to say yes, the answer is yes, we should. Because the membership criteria here is that you're not good enough. The membership criteria is that I'm not good enough. But that we've realized that we can't do it on our own. That we need a rescuer. And verses 2 to 4 remind us of the good news for every Christian. That although sin matters, God's ultimate judgment on sin has been met in Jesus. For what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son to be a sin offering. At a certain point in history, somewhere around AD 33, God came into the world in the person of Jesus, uniquely innocent and pure, and uniquely judged through his death because of our sins, because of your sins and mine. The requirements of the law, the just penalty for sin and wrongdoing is satisfied. So this isn't talking about avoiding God. It's not like when you're driving your car along and you drive past a police car. What happens at that point? Well, I don't know about you, but for me, it doesn't matter how fast I'm going, my eyes flick down to the speedometer and I instinctively feel guilty no matter how fast I'm going. God says I can face the law because the righteous requirements of the law are met. The sentence is faced and passed. The wanted posters have gone. God has done something about it in Christ. And this new status brings a new freedom. We don't just receive forgiveness, but we also receive freedom from the law of sin and death. That's verse 2. Paul's gospel here is trying to teach these Christians in Rome to hold on to truths that will keep them afloat. Can you imagine if you're drowning? 
Many passages in Scripture when we're drowning teach us how to swim. But Paul looks at us as we're drowning and he doesn't try to teach us how to swim. You know, just, just, just put your arm over the top and turn your head to the side, Dan, you'll be fine. He's not teaching us how to, how to swim. He's giving us the basic life raft that's going to keep us up. It's not about educating Christians for life. It's about giving us truths to hold on to when the Christian life is a struggle. And the first truth here is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of us are so aware of our guilt that we're unaware of our freedom in Christ. Others of us are so aware of our freedom that we lose sight of the consequences of our sin. You see the tension that's here. We have freedom through all that Christ has done. But sometimes it just doesn't feel like it. Yes, we have freedom from condemnation. But we're not yet free from the flesh, from the selfish, fallen nature. We feel guilt. So in what sense are we free? Well, in verse 5, we're presented with two ways of living. In the sinful nature or the spirit. It's the phraseology of taking sides in a conflict, of adopting or choosing a party to fight for. Which party will you belong to, says Paul? Which side are you on? Sinful nature or spirit? Our choice determines which side we're on and therefore the direction of our lives. It's not that those living in the spirit only think spiritual thoughts or are in some way perfect get that view out of your mind right now but the reality is they've changed sides the direction of life has changed and if the direction of life has changed so too has the destination our direction determines our destination that's self-evident isn't it so verse 6 if we've set our mind on the sinful nature then the destination is death But if we set our minds on the Spirit, the destination is life and peace. Each destination is determined by the mindset we choose to adopt. And when the Bible talks about the mind here, it's talking about our outlook, our assumptions, our values, our desires and purposes. So our freedom is freedom to choose our destination. With God or without him? In Christ Jesus or outside of him. But it's also freedom to choose our direction. Hostility to God or peace with God. Do you notice in verse 6 that the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. If you read that verse, you expect it only to say life. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Why does he add peace? Well, we're told in verse 7 that the mind is set on the sinful, that is set on the sinful nature is hostile to God. That's our natural mind. So this peace is counter to that hostility. The world tells us that if we look after number one, then we're going to find freedom and success. But Paul says the more we look after ourselves, the more we'll be caught in self-centered living and not be able to please God. 
And if we can't please God, then we're separated from the source of all freedom. In verse 7, he speaks in very negative tones. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Can you imagine if he reversed the logic there? If he did, what would he say? I think he'd say this. The mind controlled by the Spirit, the mind governed by the Spirit, is at peace with God and can please him. What a great truth. Even though Paul is captive to the law of sin, he knows there's no condemnation. And because of his new allegiance to Christ through his spirit, his mind is set free and he's at peace with God. No condemnation and a new allegiance to the things of the spirit. Do you feel the tension that Paul feels? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's common to all Christian experience. How can I live in the way that God calls me to? Friends, we've got a new allegiance. We set our minds on the Spirit, but this leads us into conflict. A situation of tension between flesh or the sinful nature and Spirit for all our mortal life. But this is good news for the shaky Christian because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The second great reality and tension that we face is death. And I think Paul here presents good news for dying Christians. Take a good look at verses 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Now this is great news if the spirit of God lives in you. If Christ is in you, and he is, says Paul to the Roman church, your body is dead because of sin. How is that good news? If Christ is in you, you're going to die like everyone else. That's what he's saying. How is that good news? Well, Paul is making the point that no condemnation does not mean no consequences. Relationships break down. You're converted, but that doesn't change the consequences of your sin or the sin of others. You know, our bodies run down, don't they? Just take a look around. No offense, guys, but each person's body is in decline. My body is in decline. Life has got built-in obsolescence to it. So what difference does Christ make? Well, the body may be dying, but the spirit is alive. As you see my decaying body before your very eyes, you're not seeing the whole story. Your body and mine is dead because of sin, but our spirits are alive because of righteousness. 
In this culture, we despise age. Generality, I know. But I think we do. We worship youth. We worship the body beautiful. What would happen if we saw the elderly with these eyes? This is a fallen world and the body is decaying. But life is coming. The great evangelist D.L. Moody once said this. One day you will read that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. I'll be with Christ and on that day I'll be more alive than ever before. You see, verse 11 explains verse 10. He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. What God did for Jesus, he will do for you and for me. That's the great truth of this passage. Death is immense. It's the greatest reality we face and so we're powerless. But not if we see Easter and the resurrection as a pattern for all those who are in Christ. Not just a one-off event. It's a pattern. It's the first fruits, the first expression, and therefore the promise of all that is to come. And did you note the subtlety of verse 11? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus, Jesus, his human name, from the dead is living in you he who raised Christ the king the firstborn the head of all the family he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to you what God did for Jesus who was as human as he was God he will also do for you and me So do you see how this is good news? It means that we can live with the reality of decaying bodies. We can live with the reality of suffering and death. And we can still hope. This means we need to allow a proper place for death and for illness in the Christian life. Someone might ask, do you believe in miracles? It often happens when people are sick or ill. Do you believe in miracles? Will you pray for miracles? Yes, is the answer. Absolutely, I will. I believe God has called us to pray for people who are sick and who are ill that we might see the power of God uh, come through healing. But friends, miracles include this one. Miracles include this one, that he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies. Which means that sometimes we need to learn how to let Christians die in hope and confidence, not in shame and unreality. I heard this week about an amazing Christian woman who I have known for many years, who was in her 90s, And she died. She lived a wonderful life. She was one of those beautiful and amazing Christian ladies who prayed endlessly. She used to do the children's work around the church. She was a favored granny. 
She loved Jesus and it was evident all over her. But in the weakness of her physical body, she died in hope. And I believe that there was much rejoicing in heaven as she went home last week. But I know some of you are going to be sitting here tonight saying, yeah, well, it's all very well when people have had a good innings, but what happens when we're faced with the tension of death when it seems to come all too quickly? Well, let me tell you about two people. First of all, uh, a girl called Shirley. She was a wonderful girl, same age as me. I knew her as a friend and then as her pastor. She died about four or five years ago now. She had cancer, came on really unexpectedly. She was a broken girl before she had cancer. Really struggled with church, with being accepted in church. She wanted to find a partner, didn't find one felt aggrieved that God didn't hear her prayer. As she died, and we prayed for healing for her again and again and again, but as she died, she said, I am more fully healed and more fully alive now than any physical healing would ever bring me. Because the stuff going on inside of her was healed. There was also a chap called Mike. He also was a cancer sufferer. But when you visited Mike, you weren't allowed to speak of future glory because that would be to deny the healing that the family were convinced was coming. He died in unreality and in shame. Now both knew that Jesus, both I believe are with Christ in glory. But only one died rejoicing in the good news for dying Christians. Friends, there's good news for shaky Christians. Christians don't live in a make-believe magic world. We live in the real world of weakness, of disappointment, of guilt and death. But we also live with the spirit of life who brings good news for weak Christians. We know our moral weakness and we rejoice that he takes our sinful nature and we know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we also know that there is good news for dying Christians. Physical death is not the end for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, we continue to pray for healing, but we hold on to the hope that death is not the end. And that is a hope that is guaranteed because of the resurrection. Guilt and death. Universal, I think, for all humanity. An attention for every Christian. No condemnation, yet we sin and fall short of all God calls us to. No separation, and yet physical death is a reality. How can I experience no condemnation when I feel guilty? How can I experience no separation when physical death is coming? The answer is clear. This tension is a temporary thing. One day we too will be raised as he raised Christ, set free not only in our minds and souls, but also our bodies. And the Spirit, the Spirit which is available who is available to you and to me tonight, is a down payment, a guarantee of all that's to come. And as his spirit works in us each day, we'll increasingly know the freedom that comes from no condemnation and the assurance that comes 
from no separation. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice in these incredible truths that in Christ there is no condemnation and no separation. But we struggle with the reality of it. So Holy Spirit, would you come tonight and would you give us that assurance that because of Christ we can hold to those great truths. We pray your kingdom come, Lord Jesus. Your will be done. And we pray it in your great and glorious and wonderful name. Amen.